Welcome to this podcast of Disco Mao. Disco Mao is a book that I wrote several years ago while living in China. I think it took um, altogether three or four years to write. And it was a, an attempt to combine travelogue with novel to make informing people about China a little bit more interesting and, in, and to sort of incorporate some of the best aspects of a novel. And I thought that was the the most interesting way to approach things that I'd learned about China and ideas that I'd had. Um, so I hope you enjoy Disco Mao. This podcast will be a series of readings that I do from the chapters of the book, which you can purchase from Amazon. So I hope you enjoy Disco Mao. Chapter one, China. Mandarin Chinese, as it is known by many in the West, is spoken by the majority of people in China and is the official language. It's called simply Chinese by mainland speakers, or more formally, common speech. The population of China in 2005 was between 1.2 and 1.3 billion people. This means that more people speak Mandarin Chinese than any other language in the world, including Spanish and English. Some even claim there are more people who speak English in China than in the United States. End quote. No, this is not China. No. The airport is silky glass and elegant large lines. I can see no hint of the past. I see no portraits of Mao. Yes, this is what part of me was expecting. I might get a glimpse of at least somewhere. My contact at the airport wasn't wearing worker blue. She was on the phone when I arrived and smiled and waved me out towards a door and a car when I approached. I went into, McDonald, into McDonald's first on the way out to the car to grab some fast food and try and wash something of the plane right off me. Even the bathroom looked the same as the store in Sydney, down to the tiling in the mirror. Have I left? I feel so tired and grimy. Is it possible I'm still asleep on a plane somewhere? Our black VW Santana edged its way through traffic out of the airport. We joined a stream of traffic onto one of the elevated roads. The city was a world of concrete and steel and it never stopped, reaching out to each horizon I peered out into. Skyscrapers forever. Can this be China? I'm certainly awake now, as certain as I can be. After Shanghai, we hit some greener areas. Stands of trees sprouting from clusters of buildings. We were heading toward what I thought was real China. Rice, mud walls, peasants in straw hats, etc. I leant forward and asked my escort, Mrs. Xu, from the university I'd signed to t a teaching contract with, and I said, When do we see the countryside? Some farming areas. Her eyebrows darted up a little in surprise. Oh, this is the countryside. Can you see the farms? The clusters of leafless skeletal trees were villages. They were so closely packed you could probably yell in one village and be heard in the next. There was no empty distance, no uncluttered horizon. The sky was grey and hazy, and as my eyes closed, heavy, I wondered where my China had gone. Chapter 2. Ihua, Killing Puppies Quote, Ihua City, with an area of over 10,000 square kilometres, is located on the Subei Plain of Jiangsu Province. In its 4,000 or more years of history, Ihua has been home to many notable people. 
It is a population of over 5.1 million, end quote. Shanghai, with its streaks of shopping malls and endless freeways, was a world away from what we were arriving in now. It was explained to me on the way down that Shanghai was one of the handful of what she called first-tier cities, cities that were modern and developed. Mrs. Xu chuckled, but I'm afraid our city's only a third-tier city. Well, maybe second-tier soon, but now third-tier. She watched the world go by as we peeled off the highway and cruised our way into the outskirts of the city, away from farms and clots of villages. Unlike Shanghai, there were far more bicycles than cars. Bicycles with vegetables, children and household objects edging around cars. Between a couple of big glassy mall complexes, there were blocks of plain grey or white tiled buildings crumbling and worn. Stains of time were rotting across the surface of some. The car edged its way down the lane, leading from the dusty main road to my housing area. We bounced our way through holes gashed in its surface. Along each side, peasants were standing around behind three-wheeled bicycles with large trays attached. I guess what would be the utility version of the bicycle. They were stacked with vegetables, some of which I couldn't recognise from the tinted windows of the car. They were all heavily bundled in thick layers against the cold. My ears were filled with chatter, bicycle bells and the horns of cars. People, as they crossed the small road, didn't even bother to look to see what bicycles or cars were heading their way. They only looked when the driver tapped his or her horn or a bicycle in its bell. They moved like country people, small town people, but to me this didn't look like a small town. It was dense, messy, busy, not country at all. We eventually came to a stop outside an old grey block of government housing that lay behind a brick wall with a spine of jagged broken glass cemented across the top. Bicycles were stacked up outside the entrances to the building and a bicycle shed ran up one side of the complexes away from us. A lady walked backwards by the car, circling her hands. When I got out of the car, the air was smoky and thick with burning coal. Mrs. Xu had explained on the way down that many homes still use it in Ihua for heating. I had luggage taken away from me when I tried to carry it. The driver insisted, with a smile and a nod, on carrying the stuff himself. Mrs. Xu said, You must rest. And she grabbed even my hand luggage and shuffled ahead into the stairwell. I noticed the bicycles were covered in a thick grey layer of dust, like they'd always been there. A dog yapped at me as we climbed the old whitewashed concrete staircase. Apartment doors were decorated with traditional paper Chinese messages on them, probably for a spring festival that was coming up. One was, I noticed, sponsored by McDonald's. When we got inside, I noticed first that the place was huge for one person. I guessed for locals this would be an apartment usually reserved for a family. The tiled floor rooms were all big. The living room had a traditional wooden sofa and the rest of the place had old dark wooden cupboards and bookshelves. It was dark and I opened the bedroom curtains to let in some more light. So much light spilled over me I had to squint, but none of this light made it into the wind windowless living room in the middle of the flat. Mrs. Xu directed the driver to put things in my bedroom and after she did this she felt how cold the fridge was and tested the gas. Everything looks in order, she said with a smile. And then she explained in great detail how various things worked. 
And I knew I'd forget that in about two minutes. I wandered around. My bedroom was quiet, facing the inside of the residential area. But my bathroom and kitchen faced the street and the noise of the market below filtered up into the side of the flat. As they left, I looked down out of the kitchen window at the small street we'd arrived in. I watched the people and listened to the sounds. It was the sounds that really made me feel like I was in China. The bicycles, the chatter, chickens clucking in cages, someone's old TV churning out Beijing opera. Then, as I looked about for some bottled water, I heard a terrible wailing. At first I wasn't sure what it was, and I looked down into the street to try and see what was going on. Whatever it was must have been routine because no one seemed to notice. But then, obscured a little by a tree, I saw a row of dead puppies hanging outside waiting to be cut up to sell. <laughs>